Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the Nasillacast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Thursday, August 4th, 2022, and this is show number 900. Well, I'm going to wait to release the balloons and party streamers for a thousand episodes, but 900 episodes is kind of cool, right? It's coincidental that there have now been 900 episodes of Grey's Anatomy as well. Now, you may have noticed that the show came out quite a bit early this week, as we'll be taking care of our grandchildren this weekend and then taking the whole fam family, as my father would say, to Hawaii. Actually, he also would say Hawaii. I never understood why he said that. Steve always says, I don't know, how are you? Anyway, if you had the discipline to wait until Sunday or Monday to listen, good on you. You should note that this means there will be no live show this week, and there's no live show next week. The next live show will be on Sunday, August 21st. I'd also like to give a shout out to my daughter, Lindsay. Happy birthday to Lindsay, the daughter. She's not just the best daughter in the world. She's also a Nocilla castaway who quite often comes to the live show and has been a guest more than once on Chit Chat Across the Pond. We've got a really fun show today. We're going to start with a gadget review from Sandy Fosser, also known as my wing woman in the live chat room. Then Bodie Grimm of the Kilowatt Podcast brings us a review of his flume water monitor. This is something that uh, I didn't realize I needed, but there is actually a smart home device that I don't yet own. After that, Steve, the husband, joins me to talk about a new toy he recently bought. We finish up with another solo security bits from Bart Bouchatz. Hello, everyone. This is Sandy Foster. Recently, I was preparing for a long flight to Europe, and past experience told me that I'd need to charge my Apple Watch while en route if I didn't want it to die shortly after arriving at our destination. Amazon had so many chargers that I was really puzzled about which one to get, but of course Allison did a bit of looking and recommended one to me. It seemed to have all the prerequisites. It's magnetic, so no cable to lose during the trip, and powerful enough for the little task it needed to perform. It comes in a variety of colors, black and white, of course, as well as pink, a fun option for me. It comes with its charging cord, of course, as well as a little wrist strap that can attach the device to a bag. As an extra feature, it apparently can also charge a phone or, in their words, another device, though you will need to provide your own cable for that. The device is about 7.8 centimeters long, 4.5 centimeters wide, and 2 centimeters thick, making it very easy to stash in a purse or pocket. When I received my charger, I immediately juiced it up and tested to make sure it worked, which of course it did. Like many chargers, it has indicator lights for how much charge there is. However, I completely forgot to double check the charge right before we left, and it hadn't been charged in almost a month at that point. What a surprise. This thing held its charge beautifully. I was able to charge my watch several hours into our flights, no glitches at all. My only caveat for this charger is that the power button is a bit difficult to find in the dark. It blends right into the charger and doesn't stick out much at all. The upside of that is that it would be difficult to turn it on accidentally and drain the battery. Uh, did I mention that it's pink? <laughs> well, I think you did mention that, Sandy. Thanks so much for this. This looks like a really cool tiny solution for the problem of charging your uh, Apple Watch when you're away from a wall port. I, uh, I do really like the pink, and I definitely think it's adorable. Now, there's one thing Sandy forgot to say, and that's the name of the charger. It's from a company called LV Fan, L-V-F-A-N, and she put a link in her blog post article to it on Amazon for only $22. If you're not of the pink persuasion, you can also get it in boring, black, or white. 
Next up, let's hear from the most awesome Bodie Grimm of the Kilowatt podcast. I live in a 34-year-old house. And since the day we moved in four years ago, we have had plumbing issues. Now, to this point, they have been minor plumbing issues, but it hasn't been without a ton of stress and a few unscrupulous plumbers who will find out that when they die, they've had a spot in hell reserved for some time. One of the issues we've had over the last four years are are these little small water leaks. We don't know where they're coming from. These leaks are so small that we didn't even know that we were having a water leak until we got an alert from the city of Tempe telling us that we did. So my wife and I launched an exhaustive search that spanned two months to find these leaks and we couldn't find them anywhere. And I was starting to think that the city of Tempe had one of these spots reserved in hell for them because they were trying to, I don't know, cheat me for some reason. I don't know. It was just a weird thing. They're like, check your toilets. The toilets are fine. They said, check this, check that. Everything's fine. So to prove that I was actually right and the city water department was wrong, I bought a flume to monitor my water usage, my actual water usage. And to be more accurate, I bought a flume two, but it sounds weird to say flume number two and then two monitor. It's like flume two, two monitor my actual water usage. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to say Flume throughout the rest of this review. Flume not only monitors water usage, it'll notify you if there's a leak. The Flume system comes with two pieces of equipment. The first part is a sensor that is placed next to your water meter, like really close to your water meter. This sensor comes with a little rubber strap and you simply place that strap over the water meter. And you think of it as the sensor giving the water meter like a really firm hug. The second piece of equipment is the flume bridge. The bridge does two things. First, it receives the signal from the flume sensor. And second, it connects to the internet via Wi-Fi at your house. According to the flume website, the typical water meter uses a magnetic disc inside that spins when water is flowing through it. This is how flow rate is calculated, which is really cool. The flume measures that magnetic field and it sends this information to the flume bridge and the flume bridge sends the data to the flume gods to be parsed. Once the flume gods are satisfied, you can then view your data on iOS or Android devices. There's also a web interface. The weird thing is the iOS app, I haven't tried the Android app, but the iOS app has features in it that the web app doesn't. And I don't know why that is, but it's just, you know, weird. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. And if you know anything about me, I get off topic a lot. So let's focus, focus, Bodhi, focus. The setup for this was actually very easy. First thing I did was I downloaded the app. Then I installed the proprietary battery pack into the Flume sensor. This little battery pack is just this cute little rectangle box. And you think, oh, this looks so cool. But when you actually open it up, it's just four AA batteries soldered together. It's just something to keep in mind when you need to actually replace the battery pack if you're good at soldering because it's $20 a battery pack, which is (laughs) a really stupid amount of money for four AA batteries. Anyway, next I plugged in the flume bridge and finally I strapped the sensor to my water meter with the included strap. The sensor and the bridge need to be within a thousand feet of each other, which is actually pretty generous. I followed the rest of the steps on the app to set everything up. And in about 15 minutes, everything was complete. It was a very easy process. Now I have to back up just a little bit because one of the things that Flume recommends 
is filling up a bucket with five gallons of water. So I used a one gallon jug. I filled the bucket up with five gallons of water, marked where the five gallons was. I dumped out the water and then I installed the Flume device. So now we're all caught up. Once everything was set up on the app and the bridge was working and the sensor was working, I went to my backyard, I grabbed my bucket, I filled it up to the mark, checked my Flume app and confirmed that I had just used five gallons of water to fill up this bucket. So it's pretty accurate. Flume claims their sensor is accurate to one one hundredth of a gallon. And while I haven't tested that exactly, in my experience, it seems pretty accurate. Some of the features that the Flume has is Detail Plus. Um, it shows you how much water you're using. You can assign a fixture or an appliance. So if you want to know how much water your washing machine's using versus your refrigerator, you could do that versus your shower. That's pretty cool. And I just learned about that today while I was doing the research for this. You can also set up usage alerts and be notified when Flume thinks you have a leak. Honestly, the only thing I use my Flume for is to detect if there's a leak. I don't use it for anything else. But I will say, as a family, we've done a better job at conserving water just because we can see how much water we've used in a given day. So that's actually a, a pretty good feature. So back to my issue that I stated at the beginning of this review. I have a leak in my house. Did Flume detect the leak? The answer is yes, it did. So I contacted the city of Tempe water department and I said, what do I do now? A very nice representative came out and determined that two of our toilets had teeny tiny leaks, like so tiny, he was only able to tell that they were leaking with a stethoscope, which is crazy. So after the customer service rep left our house, I went to Lowe's, I bought three toilets and replaced every toilet in the house. Not because I needed to, but because the ones that we had, they're 34 years old. They're not very efficient. And we're trying to conserve water here in the desert of Tempe, Arizona. So for our family, it just made more sense to replace them and save water over time. Now, as far as customer service goes, customer service is performed over chat in the app or on the website. I've had to use them twice for questions. Once was because my bridge wasn't working. It kept powering down. Eventually, through the troubleshooting process, it didn't take very long. They just replaced it. The second time is when I was writing this review, the sensor wasn't reporting our water use for the day to the bridge. The flume rep walked me through recalibrating the sensor and the issue was fixed. It really didn't take that long. But remember at the beginning of the review when I said that some of Flume's features are in the app and not on the website. Recalibrating the sensor was only, I can only do that through my app. I could not do that through the website. So just something to know. Flume costs $200. And when I bought it, it had a subscription service. I paid for the year and Flume said, you know what? We're going to make the reasonable decision to charge a bit more for the product and eliminate the subscription service. But we're not going to take away any of the cool features that you had in the subscription service. So that's pretty cool. I actually paid for the subscription service. I can't remember if they refunded me or not. I guess it doesn't matter at this point. And to wrap up another awkward review done by me, uh, if you guys have any questions, you can always email me. It's Bodie at 918digital.com. That's B-O-D-I-E at 918digital.com. I'm pretty sure that I didn't cover everything you could possibly cover with this product, but if you need to monitor your water or if you want to monitor your water usage, I would definitely consider buying a flume. I'm very happy with my purchase. 
Thanks, Bodhi. This was uh, fantastic. For anybody who hasn't heard Bodhi before, things like, focus, Bodhi, focus, is why I love listening to Bodhi. He says the funniest things. Uh, The flume definitely looks really, really interesting to me. We also live in a desert where we pretend it isn't in Southern California, so conserving water is definitely something on our radar here. I am a little bit worried that if I got it, though, I would go into the controls and I would monitor my sink versus Steve's sink, and we would have a familial uh, discord if we did. Th- if I did that, I'm not sure he would be really happy if we went down that road, but I might do it anyway. Anyway, thank you so much. And for people who are considering buying this, um, we Bodhi wrote a full review on this, and he's got pictures of it in the blog post, and there's a link to buy it. And uh, in there, it has the uh, an affiliate code for Troy Shimkus, actually, because he's a big fan of the Flume too. Also, Flume too. Anyway, thanks a lot, Bodhi. That was fantastic. Steve Sheridan just got a new toy, and you know that means he has to do a review, but I thought it'd be more fun to record the two of us talking about it rather than him doing a solo review. So welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you, Allison. It's good to be back on the NoSillaCast after all these months. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> I have to say Steve Sheridan uh, so that people know exactly who you are, but... Uh, yeah. Husband Steve. Husband Steve. Sorry, that's what I should be calling you. That's your official title. Well, uh, you got a new toy. Uh, Why don't you first just tell people what you got in a generic sense? Well, I got a pair of binoculars. And um, even though we've had a few pair, these are really cool. They're the Fujinon Techno Stabi 12 by 28 image stabilized binoculars. Stabi? Stabi. Is that what, really the title? That's a Fujinon, which I think is a, a division of Fuji, uh, calls them Techno Stabi. And I think that's their their name for any image stabilized binoculars that they make. When you first told me that, I thought that was like it, it got cut off in the Amazon name. You know how they have those great big long giant names or something. But uh, the, the Techno Stabies. All right. We'll, yeah. we'll try to take it seriously. So it's very high tech. Uh, yeah, exactly. So talk first about uh, the binoculars you've had in the past. Yeah, so we've had, uh, both of us have had a couple pairs of binoculars in the past. We started with a very small, compact pair of binoculars that we took out on hikes and so forth. Very lightweight, very compact, but we noticed they had a a pretty small field of view and um, and they were just, the optics weren't quite as good as I'd like to see in a pair of binoculars. So they were really nice and little though. Oh, they were easy to pack. Super lightweight, you know, like a half a pound or I forget, but well under a pound and folded to a very small uh, volume. So we decided uh, after visiting a laboratory or an observatory, you and I uh, took a little stargazing trip a few years back with Bill and Diane. We were at this observatory and they sold field binoculars, which were full size, larger field of view. Um, I don't know if they were, I think they may have been slightly better optics, but they were large, they were heavy, they were bulky. And so they were not good at all for backpacking, hiking trips, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, I think those were made by Gordon. uh, Yeah. And they were, uh, they definitely were a lot better than what we had. They weren't very expensive. They were around 45 bucks, I think, but they were, uh, like you said, they were, they were too busy, too big to really carry around. I think they were, uh, and, and they didn't provide enough advantage to make you want to carry them. So basically you have binoculars that sat at home. 
they, they were good for back backyard viewing, or maybe <laughs> if you were on a camping trip where you had a vehicle, like a, a motorhome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we brought them with us when we went to Joshua Tree with yes. uh, Diana Bill and, and Ron and Lori. Yeah. And so, right. That Those was, that was of, good because we did have a motorhome to carry them. Exactly. Uh, so that's great for viewing, let's say, galaxies, uh, even sometimes better than a telescope because they have a little wider field of view and you don't need that much magnification for nearby galaxies. And we did see a galaxy that yes, I hadn't we did. seen before. Which one was that? Do you remember? Um, it was either Andromeda or M82. I think it was Andromeda. Okay. Yeah. So that was maybe cool. Maybe both. Yes. So yeah, that was uh, really, really nice. <laughs> but we don't always have a, a motorhome to carry binoculars, right? So you went on the no. hunt for something better? Yeah, especially since we were coming up on our Iceland trip, we knew there would be some great sites with birds and volcanic formations and geysers and things in the distance. So decided to get another pair of binoculars. But in the meantime, earlier, a friend of ours, Bill, had showed us his image, stable, image stabilized binoculars, neither of which our first two pair were. And that kind of sold me that our next pair needed to be image stabilized. Especially since we were going to be on a boat. I'm sorry, right. ship. A ship, <laughs> correct. A moving, rocking ship. Now, not that much rocking, but enough that it would be harder to, to view distant objects you know, through binoculars. Right. So did uh, you had a set of criteria for these new binoculars, right? Yeah. So based on my experience with Bill's binoculars, image stabilization was number one on the list. We still needed that compact, lightweight design. Um, cause we knew we'd be taking hikes with this and in, and in the future, we needed at least 10 times magnification, uh, reasonable battery life, because when you go to, um, image stabilization that requires battery power, my cost goal was around $500 and I wanted waterproof or water resistant, uh, binoculars. Right, right. So uh, I was in, inclined on the cost item. I kept looking at that number going, the last pair we paid $45 for, and now you're saying, okay, $500. Yeah, yeah. So I noted right away when I began my search here, my most recent search, that adding image stabilization really increases the cost of binoculars. <laughs> it does add a little bit to the weight and the, and the volume, maybe a little more the weight, uh, but it greatly increases the cost. However, I knew I... That was my primary criterion. So I wanted that that one met image stabilization. Right. So um, when I go ahead, I, I started looking around and I noted that uh, as, as I saw the specs for these image stabilized binoculars, they had a somewhat smaller field of view than, than even my, um, our first pair, which I thought was too small. But that was something I thought I would just have to live with unless, unless I was going to pay well over $1,000, and I wasn't prepared to do that for a much larger field of view. Right, right. Now, now the ones you uh, did find, aren't they aren't light by any means. They're not as, as light or as small as the compact qualides that we originally had, but uh, they're about 30% lighter than the $45 ones that didn't have image stabilization. So, so that's not bad. Right. And... Most of all, they were super compact, and um, that combined with the fairly lightweight feature I, sold me. Uh, they also had a little higher magnification, 12 instead of power of 10, and uh, all of the reviews showed very good image stabilization, good enough to view objects from a, a moving, rocking ship. So that's part of the reason I got this pair. 
So field of view uh, is affected by the fact that it is image stabilized though, right? Can you talk to that? Yeah. So the way uh, image stabilization works is there is a total field of view that the optics can support, which in general is for image stabilization is larger. And then within that, a smaller actual uh, actual image stabilized field of view is moved around within the larger area very quickly to accommodate the motions that that you're putting the, uh, the binoculars through. So you will, by definition, get a somewhat smaller field of view than the optics can literally support, but it's stabilized. To those people who've uh, used the uh, video tracking feature in FaceTime on an iPad, for example, uh, what do they call it? Center stage. Where no yeah. matter where you move, it's always it's always got you in fo- in the image. The way they're doing that is the exact same technology, right? They've got they're capturing a much bigger field of view, but only showing you a smaller field of view that is is keeping you in the motion in the uh, middle of the screen. So right, it's essentially right. the same thing, I think. Yeah, it is, and and I was a little concerned about that smaller field of view, but I found that since their image stabilized, it was much easier to keep the desired object I was viewing in the center, and I didn't need as much uh, area, field of view, as I would with non-image stabilized binoculars. With the non-image stabilized, it seems almost like what you're having to do is stabilize with your own eyeballs, right? You're trying right. to just look at what's in the middle and not moving. Yeah, and it's a lot of work and, and effort to do that for long periods of time, and it's not as enjoyable to, to see objects that are bouncing around in, in the image. Right, right. So but now these, with your Fujinon Techno Stabies, um, you didn't meet your $500 budget, did you? No, not quite. I had to go up to $650, $650 on, on Amazon, and that seemed to be the going rate just about everywhere I went. But I'm, I'm pretty glad I, I spent, I went a little over my budget because the image stabilization for these binoculars was very good. And, that, and that's kind of needed when you go you know, higher than 10, 12 factor of 12 is, um, you know, you're starting to magnify quite a bit. And yeah. I, was, uh, I was fine with giving up a little of the field of view. One thing I've found annoying with some pairs of binoculars is that it's difficult to focus uh, the binoculars. And binoculars tend to be something where you look at something, you go, oh my gosh, look at this. And you want to hand them to somebody. So they mm. need to be easy to focus for the next person and also for you to be able to change focus. Mm. Uh, in my experience, these are pretty good, right? Yeah, the focusing mechanism was very smooth. It was precise. It had a nice feel to it. So easy to hand to someone else and have them focus for their eye. Didn't have a lot of hi- any hysteresis to speak of or None anything at all. like that. Yeah, yeah. very, very solid. Um, the pivoting of the lenses inward and outward to match your inner ocular eye distance, um, you know, and everyone has, you know, has some, some different distance mm-hmm. typically. That was a little bit stiff. So I'm that's hoping probably, that works out after a while. Like if we just played with it for a while, maybe it would loosen up. But yeah, it is pretty stiff. You sometimes when you go to open them, only one will pivot out. You yeah. kind of got to fuss with it to get the second one out. But it, it didn't really bother me. Yeah, it's still doable. You just have to put a little more muscle into it. <laughs> um, and I'd say that that's okay. I'm not doing it that often until I hand it over to you or you hand it over to me. Right. Uh, luckily, I, I'm not finding we have to do, I had to do a lot on the focusing and and that was, like we said, it was uh, it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, so let's see, the image stabilization requires power. So how's that right. handled? 
Yeah, so it does require a battery, one battery. It's a CR2 format, which is a little odd, short, stubby battery, maybe a little wider or, or thicker than a AA, but maybe half the height. Um, and that battery supports, it, it's advertised to support 12 hours of continuous use. I'm not sure we got quite that. I did leave it on for a while. And uh, it, although it has an auto off feature, if, if you're not using the binoculars every 10 minutes, I think I may have left them on while I was moving around. So they stayed I'm on. I'm shocked. For- you left something on? <laughs> yeah. Now, I, we, we got more than a day's use out of it, um, you know, multiple, maybe two or three days, but we were using them infrequently during those days, you know, a hike here, a hike there. So I, I, it wasn't as if that became a problem. It's just, I don't think I got 12 hours of my continuous use, maybe 12 <laughs> hours of on period. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I won't keep throwing you under the bus over how yeah. many things you leave turned on. We'll, okay. we'll, just, we'll just move along for that. Yeah. Um, so let's see another, or let's back up a little bit before the, uh, we got into what happened with the battery. Um, there was a, um, uh, a point where we were first using them and we both noticed that you, you have to hold these away from your eyes. Like if you sested, uh, settled them against your eye sockets, they they weren't, you ended up seeing like the edges and the inside and you kind of yeah, had to pull them away from your eyes. They were too close, right. And normally, well, some binoculars um, actually I'll let you adjust that distance and I didn't realize it, but uh, I was handing them, I think I handed them to you and you noticed that if you just rotated each lens, uh, you know, eye, eye cup, eyepiece, those came in and out. They threaded in and out a lot too. It was like yeah. it was like a half an inch. And as At soon least. as I did that, we both went, "Oh, that's how these are supposed yeah. to work." And that that was very nice. Once we got, I just I just thread them all the way out, and that's about the right distance for focusing uh, from my eyes to the actual lens. Yeah, it feels like that's what you're supposed to do. It, you probably could stop partway, but it feels like you're, it's just sort of like a clocking. Like you just go and it pops yeah, up. I think they have that adjustable for people who wear glasses and don't need to go as far out. Oh, right. And so point. you can rest them on your glasses and not have to, you know, and not have to bring them all the way out. There you go. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So, uh, how about when you actually started using these in Iceland? Did you like them? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely liked them. Let me just point out one more spec item, which I I did take a little hit on, but it didn't it didn't become a problem. And that is the IPX rating, which indicates how weatherproof they are. These are only rated IPX two, which is virtually nothing. So they're not good at all for water, sand, dust, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and I knew that buying them, but I just I just decided we're not going to use these in the rain or in uh, you know sandstorms. And we got lucky that uh, it basically didn't rain on us in in Iceland, except when we were in Reykjavik. But the rest of the time we were on the ship, it was it was uh, it was pretty clear. Right, right. So that worked out fine. In Iceland, man, they they work like a charm. Um, all the images I could get real crisp, clear images, easily focused, fairly quickly focused. The, the big seller was the image stabilization. That worked extremely well. Uh, even long periods were, were on the rocking boat, or there was a point where we're viewing puffins in the distance on the rocky cliffs. And uh, I could zoom right up and see their beaks and their face, 
facial features and even the little fish dangling from their beaks. Well, actually, oh, you just spoiled the story. So oh, so they sorry. looked like they had <laughs> beards on them, some of them, and we thought those were males. And then you grabbed the binoculars and looked at them and said, no, there's a whole bunch of herring that yeah. they had like strings of them in their mouth, like five or six hanging yeah. out of either side of the mouth. It was very strange. We still don't know how they picked up that those many herrings. Right. That's an herrings? odd look. Uh, when they move back and forth, the, the little herring would flop back and forth. And I kind of, that's when I thought maybe it was a beard or some <laughs> facial thing. But uh, it, it was definitely fish. You could see the heads and the tails of some of them. That's that's how crisp the images were. And I, like you say, how did they do that? Did they scoop all of them up in a row and what in one, one at action? a time and hold on to the other ones? With yeah, their how tongue? do you, <laughs> or how do you get them individually? How do you get a new one without losing the first one? <laughs> I don't know how they scoop them up like that. I anyway, brought my big cool. girl camera on the trip and uh, I got a really good close up. Uh, I did not have the zoom level that you did. I had about uh, uh, 300x and you're going to talk about that a little bit later. But I, I do have a picture of the puffin uh, with the uh, with the fish in the mouth. So we'll put that in the show notes so people can see what we're talking about. Yeah. So other things that we saw with these binoculars, there was a, a, a house in the distance on top of a lava formation that's sticking out of the ocean somewhat close to an island, a mile or two away from an island we were sailing to, but still kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And we were wondering how to even build a house up there. So we, we zoomed in with the binoculars. You could see the details of the house. You could see a crane that was at the edge of a cliff. I'm talking 300 foot tall cliff of this thing, just coming out of you know vertical cliff at the top of a grassy knoll where this house is perched. I don't know how they got up there. Uh, but maybe there the, was a lot of stuff like that where we're like, what, what, what made you think it was a good idea to put your house there in the first right. place? <laughs> right. Probably one of the big, uh, wins with these binoculars was seeing the orcas that popped up around our ship while we were sailing from one port to another, um, Captain called out, orcas on the starboard side. Of course, they were on the port side. They were. <laughs> Every single time, whatever they said, they were on the opposite side at the time. Actually, it wasn't the captain. It was the tour, um. Oh uh, yeah, coordinator. I forget I his name, but yeah, that may be the reason he didn't know port from starboard. I think the <laughs> captain would know that. <laughs> yeah, one would hope, and and hopefully he was busy with something more important than telling us where the where right. the orcas were. But it was a whole pod of them. You you know, at times three of them or four of them would come up simultaneously, and then and then off the other side of the ship, another group would come up. It was like probably a half hour of this. Uh, going back and forth, looking for the, the best shot of the orcas. And you got a, a beautiful view, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and that one, um, you know, one of the things that y- you realize when you have these great views is, oh, if I could only have a photo of these views, I, I'm mm-hmm. seeing them real time, but I want to capture this. And I just did a quick calculation and for uh, magnification 12, You'd need a 600 millimeter lens on a camera to capture that same magnification. Oh my gosh! Uh, and we're not going to be carrying that around uh, anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, I was carrying a 300 millimeter equivalent lens with a micro four thirds, and so it's really 150 millimeter. But it, the way the multiplying with the sensor works, it's 300 millimeters. That a 600 millimeter lens would be massive. That would be oh, really I didn't big. do that conversion for you. It would have been a 300 millimeter for your camera then. Oh, it would have. Okay. Yeah. But well, right. But, but it would have been. Millimeter. It still would have been massive. It yeah. would have been really huge. Right. Now, back in 2019, we interviewed a company called Nexoptic, uh, who had binoculars that take photos. And uh, I just p- pulled up the uh, a link to the video on it. And um, it had a 12 megapixel sensor, but the optical zoom was only 10x. 
And what what is the uh, zoom on yours? 12. 12. Okay. Well, yeah. it's getting close. So I don't know whether that company ended up uh, making those or not, but uh, maybe that's what you should have gotten so you could take pictures. Yeah. <laughs> I don't well, think they're the image stabilized though. One other thing I didn't mention is the uh, binoculars t- typically come in, um, you know, A by B, A being the magnification, B being the diameter in millimeters of the uh, lens of the hmm. uh, of the field so, of view, or well, no, it's the actual it's the actual diameter in millimeters of the uh, uh, it's not the objective lens anyway, the the big lens. Okay, so these are twenty eight, twelve by twenty eight, twenty eight millimeter. Lens. The larger that uh, lens is, the the wider field of view, but the cost goes up dramatically with that number and the weight and the size. Okay. So that's why this these are a little bit smaller. I did find some comparable. Uh, you know, I looked around on Amazon, looked at the reviews, looked at comparable binoculars. Probably the closest I found was a was the Canon twelve by thirty six image stabilized three binoculars. But those came in at about 750 and they were quite a bit heavier. Mm. Um, so I opted for going lighter and cheaper and I, no regrets. I, I'm happy with what we came up, came away with. Great. Oh, oh one other thing you got, you were able to watch uh, when we were watching the puffin. Puffin are kind of a, a comical looking bird. They're, they look like a cartoon bird to me. They're very colorful. They're really, they're really neat looking. And, uh, but they have kind of a tubby body. And when they would fly, it just looked improbable that they could fly. <laughs> they were so funny looking. I spent most of my time trying to photograph them flying and I didn't get any good pictures. You actually got a pretty good one from your phone. Um, oh, but you, you were able to watch them with your, uh, with your binoculars. Yeah, I, I was. And I got some great views. Um, by the way, that that image I gave you wasn't from my phone. It was, I also brought my camcorder, which can zoom in fairly well with good zoom. And then I took a still from a video that I took with my camcorder. I must've put the wrong photo in because this was an HEIC file. So I think it, oh. it was from your f- phone, but- uh, um, I could stand corrected here. Maybe I Yeah, but that, that does wrong. sound like you would have done that. Yeah. So we'll have to go back and confirm that. The, the other funny thing about puffins, you said they're tubby. That's certainly true. When they're flying, they they don't look like they should be able to fly. But they also, I don't know if this happens when they're flying all the time or just when they're coming in for a landing, their legs stick out. Their little stubby <laughs> like, feet. Like side to side. They're, they're yeah. webbed feet and everything to the side. And they're not long. They're little stubby things. So they look, they just look like. Uh, you know, would you say a flying bathtub? Or yeah, flying? yeah, they definitely look like a little flying or <laughs> flying little... tugboat. That's what I said. Yeah, tugboat. That's it. <laughs> now we did have one weird experience when you first took them out to uh, try to look at the orcas. All of a sudden, you said something. You were saying, "Oh no, they're broken." Yeah, I got really concerned that we we banged them up or dinged them because I pulled them up. We. Look, well, I <laughs> <laughs> pulled them up to look at the orcas. And the image was swaying back and forth, not a, not with my motion either. It was like wobbly at with some random slow wobble. And I said, what is going on? I checked the image stabilization switch. There's an on-off switch. They were on, but the image certainly wasn't stabilized. And then I realized um, there there is an LED light which comes on when image stabilization is on, and this was off. So I figured it must be the battery. Swapped out the battery, put the new one in, and... Sh- 
sure enough, locked in on the image stabilization. That's all it was. Okay. Okay. So I wonder if there would have been any better way for it to indicate to you that it was a dead battery. I guess not having the light on is your indicator. Yeah. And I wasn't used to that light, but I did remember it finally. It wasn't the first thing I looked at. Um, Maybe a a low battery warning, but they don't have any, any imagery, you know, projected in or the display in the on the device Dis- or anything like right. that. Right. Yeah. I think for cost, which is fine. Uh, I'll just know to look look for that green LED being on. Or if or if the video if the uh, image through it's all gloppy and loopy, right? Right. <laughs> then you know uh, something's not right it's here. Bouncing around. It sounds yeah. like maybe it was real low power at that point. Well, the way you know, as I go back to think about the way it was behaving, I think it uh, the optics were unlocked, or the, we'll call it the stabilization oh, mirror okay, was so unlocked, it was and it was loose and moving just under its free will. But it had some inertia, so it wasn't moving real quickly. Okay, uh, and then uh, so that thing is um, clearly without battery power. It's not gonna. It's not going to move properly. <laughs> the battery the battery is important to these. Pretty All right. Important. So overall, you'd say you're pretty happy with these? Very happy. I'd recommend them to anybody. The, the one exception would be uh, people who are going to find themselves in, in wet or sandy, dusty conditions. Mm. If Or if you're trying to track or follow something that's quickly moving across your field of view. Not, if you're moving, these things work great. Um, including just shaky hands or a moving boat. But if the object is moving and you're have to, having to scan quickly, uh, you might want a little wider field of view than these. And examples might be, say, for uh, our friends Rick or Jill, bird watchers, they, they, you might have a little more trouble tracking a bird flying across the field of view if, with his narrow field of view. Yeah, the Arctic Turns. Did you try to watch those? Those guys were fast. Yeah, I, um, I had limited success. <laughs> and I it tried, probably I, wouldn't be good for bats. <laughs> right, right. I, I was fine looking at them when they came to the ground, but they have a really cool in-flight shape, and that was harder to catch. Yeah, yeah. It, but but the flying tugboat. Uh, <laughs> they were easier, <laughs> the tugboats. <laughs> no problem tracking them. All right. This is very cool. We will have uh, links in the show notes to the um, uh, to the Fujinon Techno Stabi binoculars on Amazon for six hundred fifty dollars. Anything else, Steve? I think that kind of wraps it up. It was a good trip, I will add. Well, that was a lot of fun hanging out with Steve there. But it is time for what Frank likes to call pledge break. You know, the NoSillaCast and all of the other fine shows we do here at the PodFeed Podcast Network are all free. There are no ads, no sponsors to whom I would be beholden. Nothing to interrupt your listening pleasure other than this less than 30-second suggestion that you might like to show your support to keep the show ad-free by going to podfeed.com slash Patreon and pledging a weekly or monthly amount to show the value you get from our content. folks, Bart here with another solo security bits. I still don't like doing these, but Alison says I'm fine at them and listeners in the Slack channel, podvita.com forward slash Slack seem to like them. And I want to help out while Alison is uh, looking for listener support while she's dealing, you know, family travel, all the cool fun stuff. So uh, against my better judgment, here we go with another short solo security bits. It's short simply because it's the summer and there's not much happening and because it's only covering about a week and a half of news. So, yeah, anyway. 
let us get stuck in. So there are no feedbacks or follow-ups to the long-running stories. There are no deep dives. So we arrive straight to action alerts. And we basically have two open source stories here. None of them are set your hair on fire, but they're both worthy of a mention. So the first is to say that Samba have patched a critical bug, which is, depending on which parts of Samba you use, there are some bad bugs or there's a catastrophic bug. So there's four bugs in total being patched. And one of those four affects users who use Samba to power a full Microsoft Active Directory style domain. You can do that, actually. You can have what appears to be a Windows domain with lots of Windows users joined to it and lots of Windows computers on it. And there's no actual Windows server behind it. It's a Samba server instead. And if you do that, then obviously you have a full Microsoft Active Directory implementation. And the bug affects that part of Samba and it allows anyone to successfully authenticate, not just as a user, which would be catastrophic, but as a domain administrator. So it's a security bypass on domain admin accounts, or in fact, on any account, and it gets domain admin powers. It is about as terrible a bug as you can possibly get on an Active Directory implementation. Absolutely catastrophic, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. And that's one of four bugs they fixed in Samba. So what's way more commonly used than the Active Directory part of Samba is just the Windows file sharing part of Samba. Um, pretty much every Linux distribution uses that. And the Mac used to use that, but hasn't used it for quite some years. Apple actually have their own, very different rather, implementation of Microsoft's uh, networking stack. And frankly, the reliability of Windows file sharing on the Mac has gone down since Apple stopped using Samba. Anyway, neither here nor there. A heck of a lot of Linux people are using Samba. And the other three bugs are in those bits of Samba that, you know, are more commonly used. They're not as catastrophic as everyone becomes a domain administrator. But then again, very little is that catastrophic. They are still patchy, patchy, patch, patch bugs. So if you have a Linux VM or whatever sitting around, you know, now would be a good time to wick it up, give it a wee patch and let it get on with its life again. And obviously, if you're running a Linux desktop OS or Linux server, you should have normal processes in place to keep yourself patchy, patchy, patch, patched. So just do that. And in fact, if you do it now, you get a twofer because there is also a very important security update to what is probably the second most important cryptographic library, but it's almost nowhere near as well known as the most important cryptographic library, which is OpenSSL, uh, because OpenSSL had the heartbeat vulnerability eight years ago, and that was the first of these bugs to get like a logo and a web page and stuff. And so we, it, it hasn't... It is more famous than it really deserves to be. Um, and so because of that, OpenSSL has a reputation that it doesn't deserve as being this terrible, insecure mess, where in actual fact, it's a really good project. But anyway, that's not the here or there. There are lots of open source crypto libraries. And while OpenSSL takes a limelight, another one that is at least, you know, very, very similar in terms of its importance and in terms of its use is GNU TLS. And GNU TLS have released uh, some patches to address a little whoopsie in how the app manages memory. Um, we're kind of familiar with a use after free error and these kind of things you tend to hear about, but there's a whole other class of error, which is expertly described in the linked Naked Security show notes, or linked story in the show notes from Naked Security. It's called a double free. Freeing up memory and then freeing up the same memory again is actually a whole other kind of bug that can lead to remote code execution in some situations, which I, I wasn't aware of the subtleties of how double free can be such a catastrophe. But having read the post, I now have a better understanding of double free. So if nothing else, have read the post just to understand double free errors better. But this is security bits, not programming by stealth. 
So the reason I'm telling you about this is because if you're using Linux, it is almost certain that you ha- you are using GNU TLS. It is a dependency of something you have installed. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. It is also massively used in open source projects. I was just scanning through a list of some known impl- you know, implementations and it includes things like FFmpeg, which you may not immediately guess would need a crypto library, but it does include GNU TLS. So again, if you're on a Linux-based operating system, your package manager will have your back and you'll have lots of updates of all of the different things that use GNU TLS. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. But if you're running on micro windows and you're using open source tools, you're not going to get as easy an update. So now actually would be a good time to make sure that all of your various open source bits and bobs on the non-Linux operating systems are patched. So big hitters on the Mac would be stuff like Homebrew or Mac ports. You know, you, you, would, you often install stuff like FFmpeg through Homebrew and you might never think of it again. So it might just be worth doing a brew update just to be sure or a Mac ports, I think, Ports update is the command for Mac ports. You have to double check, but you know, you may have open source stuff and so that's not being managed through software update. That's not being, or it's being managed through a package manager. You don't remember to let update itself. So it's just a good reminder to patchy, patchy, patch, patch. And again, those Linux VMs you might have lying around, wake them up, give them a patch. Because there's a lot going on. So there are action alerts uh, for this week and a half's worth of news. So moving on then to worthy warnings. And again, there's nothing here to set your hair on fire about. There's just two little heads ups I think are worth sharing with you. So the first is, it is a very common kind of programming blunder. There's a theme here, programming blunders. Um, But in fact, the theme gets stronger in the next story. So yeah, definitely a theme today. Programming blunders are bad for security. It is unfortunately a thing where developers often forget to protect secrets. So your code contains all sorts of variables, store things like you know, the string to greet people with and uh, 20 million different things that get put into variables inside of your app. And one of the things that you may end up needing to have in a variable temporarily are security keys of various types and sorts so that you can do authentication. But you're supposed to save those in such a way that looking at the app or looking at its repository in a place like GitHub, won't reveal the secret, right? There are all sorts of tools. and There is a right way to deal with secrets in programming, and there are a million and one wrong ways. So when you do it wrong, you end up leaking your secret. So some security researchers went and had a poke around in some common apps to see they could find leaked Twitter API keys. So an API key allows a program to authenticate against a Twitter account and then tweet as that Twitter account. So that is how apps can tweet. And it's entirely legitimate to set up API keys, right? That is one of the ways in which Twitter is intended to be used. But of course, those API keys are as critical as your username and password. They're effectively special usernames and passwords to be used by apps. So you're supposed to protect those like they are the crown jewels because in fact, kind of are, right? They are they are a golden key into your Twitter account. So as a corporation or a group that has an app, you really, really need to make sure that you're treating the secret that is your, your Twitter API key correctly. And unfortunately, well over 3,000 apps were found not to, in fact, be protecting their Twitter API keys properly. So there are thousands of Twitter API keys floating around out there for someone to find. The security researchers haven't published them, but if they can find them, so can other people. They haven't done magic, they've just done research and other people can replicate their research and other people may not be scrupulous. So why am I telling you this? Because 
unless you are a programmer, very, very, very unlikely that your key, that there is an API key to your Twitter account included in this mess. So what does it matter to you, the average Nicola Castaway? The reason it matters is because there is now a significantly above normal probability of Twitter accounts for major brands and or apps being abused at the moment, because if you're a major brand, then you've accidentally leaked your Twitter API key. Well, an attacker can use that API key to tweet as you, as the, as your brand and the official account for your brand. So that means that any sort of phishing attack or anything like that is going to have way more weight because it's going to be an actual genuine account tweeting out the messages. It might even be an account with a blue tick. So you should always be suspicious of stuff going on on Twitter, but just have your, turn your, your um, ever-present vigilance up to 11 on Twitter for the next while, because these keys are now known to be out there. The bad guys will find similar keys out there. So there will be Twitter accounts taken over because of this the question is just which. And on a very similar note, really, uh, I just want to give out yet another reminder that despite the Super Bowl ads and the celebrity endorsements, the whole world of DeFi or decentralized finance or crypto, as in the short version of cryptocurrency or the new buzzword Web3, all of those are fancy terms for the same thing, right? It's all this cryptocurrency stuff, your NFTs and all that stuff. This is, at the moment, where IoT was a decade ago. The utterly insecure Wild West early phase. Only un as bad as IoT was in terms of having like utterly hackable devices in your home network along with all of the stuff you care about, which is pretty bad. In this case, it's literally money. So it is an insecure mess with actual money. Now, if you want to gamble... I believe the official phrase is invest, but let us be very clear. This is gambling. If you, if you enjoy gambling, great. Go play a startup machine or go play in this DeFi crypto Web3 thing. It's gambling. So if you want to invest in this racket, do not invest any money you can't take a 100% loss on because the chances of becoming a millionaire are non-zero, but very, very small. The chances of you losing much, if not everything, are high. Yes, there are anecdotes of people getting rich. Some of those are even true. That does not mean that this is anything other than a security nightmare. So, just to underscore the point, $200 million have just been lost through a coding whoopsie on a service called Nomad, which is a um, called a token swapper. So it's a service for translating cryptocurrency of one type into cryptocurrency of another type. So sort of a foreign currency exchange for cryptocurrency. And they made a boo-boo, which allowed a so-called replay attack. In other words, you could take a past transaction, change the destination wallet, and run it again. Or uh, basically... If you find a transaction that say give Bart 20 bucks, you can run it again and say give Bob 20 bucks and give Bob another 20 bucks and give Bob another 20 bucks. You can see how you could very easily abuse a bug like this to make $200 million worth of cryptocurrency go to the wrong place. 
that is how much of an insecure mess this DeFi crypto web three thing is. Experiment if you wish. Expect to lose everything. Okay, I'm gonna get off my soapbox now. And Alison wasn't here to stop me, so if I went on a little bit too long on my soapbox, I apologize. But really, I cannot stress how important it is to go into that whole thing with your eyes wide open. I'm not saying don't play, but I am saying expect to lose all of your money, so don't play with anything of value. Right, notable news. iCloud Passwords for Windows has gotten a wee bit of an update. It will now allow you to do that whole two-factor code thing that you can do in Keychain in the Mac. So this is excellent to see more feature parity coming to Windows people. In a very much a related explainer story, Apple Insider just published a piece, how to use iCloud Keychain on Windows and how it differs from Mac OS and iOS. This is an excellent article if you are A, a Windows user yourself, by choice or not, or B, have friends or family who use Windows by choice or not. If they're also in the Apple ecosystem, then it's good to know that you now have pretty good iCloud keychain support on Windows. So that is basically an, af an affordable, effectively free, good password manager cross-platform. And that's going to become ever more important in our future world of uh, Fido passkeys. Right? Having iCloud keychain on Windows become a first-class citizen of the iCloud ecosystem is very important as passkey support rolls out. Right, We need those passkeys to stay in sync between our iOS devices or Macs and our Windows machines. And so seeing Apple give some TLC to iCloud for Windows is very important in my opinion. So I'm really happy to see it. Links in the show notes. Um, our friends at MacPaw, they are a Ukrainian software developer who actually do some nice software. Uh, in fact, they do a lot of nice software. But uh, one of the things they did a while ago was they released an app called Spybuster for the Mac, which would scan your applications folder and have a look through the app bundle for apps with ties to Russia and just basically let you know which apps are tied to Russia and the nature of that tie. And the nature of that tie can be very variable from as simple as the developer is registered with a Russian address. The developer's domain name is Russian. The developer's bundle identifier is Russian. The, you know, to very, very circumstantial connections to Russia too. This thing sends all of its data back to Russia. There is a spectrum in between there. And it's just, it's a good way to A, protect yourself from the nasty nasties and B, to consider expressing your views on the war by boycotting Russian software, if you so wish to do. I'm not saying that that's something that you should do. I'm just saying that that is something that you're considering doing. This is a really good tool to help you see what's going on. But in terms of finding apps that are actually phoning home to Russia, that's just plain old valuable because... I do not believe it is controversial to say that the Russian government is not trustworthy at the moment. So if your data is being sent that away, that is something I would like to know about. Why am I telling you this? Well, the Mac version was cool. It was free. It's also built into some of their paid-for products, the same functionality, but it's available for free as a standalone Mac app called Spybuster. And now, through magic, I frankly don't fully understand there is an iOS app that does the same thing. Now, this is not a jailbreak app. This is a legitimate app in the actual app store. I have installed it on my actual iPhone. It does what it says on the tin. I can only assume that what it has access to, so the way iOS works under the hood, right? the user doesn't see the file system, but there is a file system under there. And the actual apps and the data 
the apps work with are completely separate and they're stored in completely different parts of the file system. And the cryptographic protections are on your data, not on the app. So I think the way this works is that there is an entitlement that legitimate scanning apps can request when they submit their app. So app sandboxing works with this concept of entitlements where your sandbox is allowed nothing except for the things it needs access to. And you get those things you need access to by saying, these are the entitlements I need. And then the apps review process looks at those entitlements, looks at your app and says, is it reasonable that this app needs these entitlements? And that's part of the review process. So the sandbox is basically like a firewall. It's There are rules to allow what should be allowed through, through and nothing else. And so it would appear that there's an entitlement to allow an app like Spybuster for iOS to scan the apps you have installed, not the data that those apps work on. And so that allows Spybuster to do exactly on iOS what it does on the Mac, which is read through the app bundle, so the metadata for the app to look for apps that have connections to Russia and to check the apps you have installed against the database of apps that are known to send data to Russia. And there are also a whole bunch of new APIs on iOS to help you monitor what apps are actually doing with data. And I presume those same APIs are what are being used here by Spybuster to detect apps phoning home to Russia, which is one of the things you can also do in the iOS version of the app. So it's really cool. It's just amazing how far iOS has gone that it's possible to offer this kind of functionality in a secure way where you're not trusting your data to MacPaw and there's no need for jailbreaking, but they can do this kind of useful, effectively... Malware is probably the wrong word, but unwantedware scanning for you on iOS. So anyway, I thought that was really cool. Also then in the notable news section, uh, T-Mobile got in a lot of trouble in 2021 for a pretty catastrophic data breach. Um, I think it's good news for everyone that being caught with these kind of data breaches where you're, it's not that they were unfortunate, it's that they just weren't prepared, right? They, they just hadn't done their due diligence to protect the data. And that is now going to cost them $500 million. And I think that just helps protect all of us where it becomes clear to companies that you can't just play fast and loose with data. It actually has actual consequences. So I, as I say, I'm relieved to see T-Mobile not getting away scot-free for this one. Right, well, that's it in terms of notable news. Um, the only other thing I have left, really, because I don't have a palate cleanser, unfortunately, but I do have a just because it's cool. It's not really a palate cleanser, but you know, I do I do leave this section in the show notes called just because it's cool for when I find cool things I just can't find any other hook for in the show notes. And there's something cool that happened and I couldn't find a hook for it. So anyway, what am I talking about? Well, probably not surprising that Linus Torvalds has pushed the latest scheduled release of Linux. He does that literally every few months. I think it's I can't remember if it's a two or a three month cycle, but Linux is on a regular release cycle. So we know Linus pushes Linux updates. What's unusual is not so much what Linux, Linus pushed, but where Linus did his push from. The latest version of Linux was published from Linux. Okay, Asahi Linux. That's a distro you may not be familiar with. Asahi Linux is the version of Linux being actively worked on that runs on M1 and M2 Max. Linus Torvalds, published the latest version of Linux from his M2 MacBook Air running Asahi Linux. Linux support on the M-series Macs is coming along 
very nicely indeed. So that made me really happy to see that, and I think that's pretty darn cool. So uh, there we go. Right, well, I'm going to draw a line under it here, under my rambling solo security bits. I hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, Alison has already teased the fact that we have a very, very special guest, uh, guest stand-in, guest Alison substitute, I guess, lined up for the next security bits, which will be recorded while Alison is off in Hawaii. Uh, I, I'm really looking forward to talking with Substitute Allison. I promise you, if we pull this off, you guys will love what we do too. You know, all of our ducks, our ducks are very, very close to being in a row, so it almost certainly happened. But uh, anyway, I, enough teasing, enough teasing. Remember, folks, until next time, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, thanks, Barb, for bringing that to us because uh, I like to hear it too, and I do think you do a bang-up job. It does make me so happy that he feels that I am a valuable asset to when he does his recordings. It, it makes me really happy because I enjoy the heck out of doing it. But this is the last week he will be doing a solo show. We have a special guest who has volunteered to be my foil, or to be his foil, I should say, replacing me in my seat. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to listening to that too. But that is going to wind us up for this week. I will be on vacation, but of course I'm going to have a laptop with me and my iPad. So you can email me at allison at podfeet.com. You can send me questions, suggestions, anything you got, just send it on over. Uh, let's see, you can follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. And remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. So if you want to talk to me and all the other no-seller castaways, along with Bart and Alistair and everybody else, join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack. And uh, let's see, if you want to support the show, don't forget podfeet.com slash Patreon. Or if you don't like the subscription idea, do a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. Those help a lot, too. And if you want to join the fun of the live show, on August 21st, you can head on over to podfeet.com slash live. That's a Sunday night, and the show will be at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Again, August 21st will be the next show. In there, you'll be able to join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. We hope to have Frank back there soon. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.